and we are live. Thank you so much, Kim. And thank you all so much for showing up today. Uh, as Kim said, my name is Gabe. I know a lot of you, so nice to see a lot of old friends here, people I didn't necessarily expect to see. And, uh, and then for those of you, uh, how many of you have ever had a class with me and or Judge Cohen before? A lot of you, okay, it's old, old home week, so thank you, it's so nice to, to be here again with you. Uh, we have one glitch, and we'll kind of explain it when we get there, uh, a little technical glitch, but I think it'll still make for a, a fun class. So today we're gonna be talking about the trolley problem. The point of this class, and again, we'll explain what the trolley problem is and all of the uh, kind of associated ideas with this, but is to help us all get better at making tough choices. So to start us off with our first tough choice, I'll turn it over to my friend, Judge Cohen. What a great way to spend the Friday afternoon before a three-day weekend. So the good news is we're giving everybody Monday off. I don't know if you got that memo, but you can take Monday off. Um, but then you had to head downtown Phoenix on a Friday afternoon, and we're hoping that after you spend a little time with us, you'll look at it and go, wow, that actually was okay, even though I really was motivated to do it because I needed the credit uh, going forward and I was reaching deadlines. Or whatever it is that I heard everybody talking about, I get that. But if we're all stuck together, why not make it good instead of just being uh, a bean counter approach? Um, this is a different kind of subject, and it's not going to be like, I know that part of this is for ethics credit, it's not going to be, well, rule such and such says this, so make sure you don't do that. Um, it's not going to be as obvious as how it applies, but I think in the end you'll see it, and hopefully it'll be a little more entertaining. If not, it's Gabe's fault. <laughs> so, um, we start with Winston Churchill, and... There was a reason for it. It was, uh, I think, uh, towards like 1943, 44, somewhere the latter part of World War II, and the Germans had created a foothold in northern France, and they had these, these bombs that were V1s. These were gigantic bombs that were, through a gas motor, they could launch it, and it would fly a certain distance run out of gas and it would crash and when it crashed the bomb would explode. And they had it calculated that they were able to fly it from wherever they launched it from northern France to the heart of London. And uh, a very effective way of attacking London because they weren't risking planes in the air and, and all that. Well, the Germans had some spies that were in the British government but unbeknownst to the Germans, these were double agents. So Churchill realized that the Germans were becoming quite effective in hitting the heart of London, the seat of power, where the military was being run out of, where all of the important war mechanisms were really centered. So with these double agents, he, they came up with the idea, let's tell the Germans that they're actually consistently landing 20 miles north of their target. And they passed that on through these double agents. So the Germans readjusted these bombs and instead of them hitting the heart of London, these bombs started to land in South London. South London was a populated area. It was populated by blue collar and, and lower socioeconomic people. 
but it wasn't then doing damage to the seat of government, to the home of the war effort, to really important function in the height of war. As a result, the Germans were not wiping out London or where, where they were hoping to, and they didn't realize that they had been really, by directing them 20 miles south, it directed them away from the heart of London instead of to the heart of London. So, that's what the decision was there. We're going, Gabe had mentioned we have technology that was, is really fun, but it, it just didn't work, where we had clickers where you could vote, and then the, the results are gonna show up. A few things. This is not a vote that is a right or wrong answer. There is no right or wrong answer to any of these questions that we're gonna pose. They are personal decisions of, of what things that you know, you've put as priority in your thought process. But when we pose these questions to you, please don't assume any facts other than we give you. Because uh, particularly with uh, those groups that are higher educated, we have a tendency for people like you to come in and say, well, but what if this, or what if this intervening such and such? If you will, just kind of stick with what we're throwing out there, and uh, even though we realize you can probably think it through with greater complexity than the simplicity in which it's presented. So with that said, and we're gonna have to ask by a show of hands, what would you do if you were Churchill? Number one, what he did, redirect the missiles away from the seat of government, knowing that you're putting a lot of your citizens, not only in harm's way, but basically guaranteeing their death. Not what he did, do not direct the missiles, or you don't know. So by a show of hands, how many people would do what Churchill did, would direct the missiles to South London? Okay. So about eight or nine, nine, ten. How many would not redirect it? Okay. And how many just you don't know? All right. So I'm not a statistician, but I will tell you that what I saw here is perhaps something like 67, 33. 67% would, would redirect them. 33% would not, it would exclude those that are not sure. For those who, who decided, yeah, I would do that, anybody care to, to give a thought of what was involved in you saying that that would be me? I would do a Churchill thing. Yeah. Well, the most important thing is to win the war, and that seems like that would help ultimately win the war, which would benefit everybody on the British side, as opposed to losing and doing a morally fine thing, but if you lose, then what did you really do? Okay. Anybody who voted for this group, not what he did. Anybody, you want to give a thought? Yeah. Um, basically, um, the value of life is more important than the where they meet for government. Government can be moved. It's an entity that just moved the building. Where do you go? All right. So, bear those thoughts in mind as we progress through this. <coughs> Dave is going to take us from this point. Go ahead. Thanks, Richard. And just a quick note on the slides. What you're going to see is these funny little results pop up. These are obviously not reflective of your votes. I was testing the system before in my desk, so ignore those numbers. Bruce's spot-on uh, statistics are, are what count there. So 
We're going to talk a little bit about what the trolley problem is. Any Phoenix natives here, or Valley natives, I should say? Very nice. None of you are old enough to recognize, but the original light rail, that's an actual Phoenix rail car. So. train is heading towards five workers on a railway line. There's no way of warning, but you're standing near a lever that operates some points. Switch the points, and the train goes down a spur. Trouble is, there's another worker on that bit of track, too. But it's one fatality instead of five. Should you do that? That is the trolley problem. Now that we've described it, some of you are probably like, okay, I think I've heard that dilemma before, right? You understand what it's saying? You're standing at the switch, your choices are two. Either one person gets hit and dies by the runaway train, or five people get hit and die by the runaway train. Those are your choices. So, what would you do with the switch? You're the one standing there with the switch. Do you flip it, and by doing so, only one person gets hit? Do you not pull the switch? Ergo, the five are gonna get hit and die or I don't know an other. Now I want to preface something. All of our questions have the I don't know an other option, but use it sparingly. Um, don't use it just because you don't feel like thinking on a Friday afternoon. Um, I will ask for those of you that vote that if you're willing to share what it is that you're struggling with or why you chose that so that you don't get to get away with just not voting for a meaningful thing. So, how many of you flip the switch so only one person dies? 90, 100%, it looks like. You don't pull the switch. So the five, the runaway train keeps going, five. I think we're at like 95 and 5%. I don't know or something else. Okay, nobody, thank you. I appreciate you using that sparingly. So this is interesting here. I, I, um, Gabe estimated that's a 95 to 5%. This question has been posed literally thousands and thousands of times around the world. And statistically, it almost always comes out 80% flip it, 20% don't. We're not that far off, so I'm not saying this is an anomaly. The, the part that's important about that statistic, vast majority of people, if I just stand like this, I didn't cause the five people to die, it's just I didn't intervene. The choice is, do you intervene? And across the board, across gender, across cultures, etc., there's an, on average, an 80% of people will say, I will intervene, flip the switch, because only one person will die if I do that, five will die if I don't. 20% on average will say, I'm not, whoops, this is so cool to me that it could touch a TV, um, but I didn't mean to. About 20% will do this, will we'll say, I'm not going to do anything. Yeah? If you flip the switch, there's a very real possibility that nobody will die. Because the train's going very fast, it would have to make a sharp left turn and then a sharp, <laughs> a sharp right turn and a sharp left, turn, sharp left turn. That being the case, if it didn't flip on one of those turns, it'd be making a heck of a lot of noise and theoretically, the one worker out there by himself, he'd, would, 
hear that, see that, and get that out of the way. Okay, so when you're when you're standing there at that moment, you're saying you're saying part of that decision is not just the five versus one. It's that there I, I can maybe cause an intervening event. Mm -hmm. Something else will happen. And as we said when we started. Stop. <laughs> the reason is, is because it does, we're, we are going to get into the weeds on this, uh, but that is exactly true. Sometimes people will make decisions that don't have to do with the qualitative decision that's made here, but really is an assessment of the very big picture. And that's why I said, uh, and, and this is not said out of disrespect to a group of people, but it's been shown that the higher educated the group is that does this, the more they will get into complex analysis of all of the other things that can impact it. So we're going to just assume for the sake of this discussion that one or the other will happen. You pull the switch, one will die. You don't pull the switch, five will die. But your point is very well taken, by the way, no, and is the situation comes up a lot. The 80% is that a worldwide opinion? I, you know, I, I, I haven't dug down that deeply, but what, when I, the stuff that I've read about it is that it's a general rule around the world, no matter where they've applied it. This whole thing started in England, by the way. But they've, they've done it on so many levels. And the interesting thing is when Gabe and I have done this, and we've done it to a number, gone through this with another, a number of groups, we've almost always been at similar statistics uh, consistently. So we're going to share with you. Uh, I'm going to shrink it down a little bit more. Here's just something for you to give you a further appreciation. And use his organs to do it. But that's not the same thing. Why not? 
it's still choosing to kill one person to save five, isn't it? Michael, you've been kind of quiet. What do you think about all this? Well, obviously the dilemma is clear. How do you kill all six people? Shark <laughs> blade out the window to slice the neck of the guy in the track. As we smush our five main guys. Oh, I did the thing again, didn't I? Yeah, ten more, buddy. People good. People, why is that so hard to remember? People, what is it? Good? Good. <laughs> I confess I've never watched an episode of this show, I don't know about the rest of you, but after watching this clip, I'm like, I really have to watch this. This is very, very funny. So, what we're going to engage in today, and what they were just engage in, engaging in, is called, no joke, trolleyology. Now, part of the reason we have this slide is because it's just fun to say, trolleyology, but this is actually a branch of philosophy. Now, um, my brother, who's a philosophy professor, and whose choice, uh, career choice was looked down upon by my dad as being useless, uh, would probably say, exactly, that's proof that people are around debating this problem. But as you'll see over the next 70 minutes or so, it really opens up some really interesting and tough questions using this really basic example. And we're gonna explore some of the more famous ones through trolleyology, and by the end of this, you know what you all will be? Trolleyologists. Excellent. We're graduating. So what we're going to do in here today, we've kind of tipped our hand a little bit. We're going to be slowly unfolding uh, the trolley problem and unpacking different versions of it and then voting on it as the circumstances change. We're going to start off with a little mini uh, philosophy lecture. Sorry, I was a philosophy minor. I'm not quite the professor in philosophy like my brother is, but I'm a minor, so I'm going to share a little of the philosophy behind this, and then we're going to move into the, those examples and again vote on it as we go. This class is important about participation. Uh, obviously, the voting is a built-in opportunity, but if at any point you have questions, comments, you want to disagree with Bruce or I, that's awesome. As Bruce said, these aren't right or wrong answers. These are tough questions, and we're going to have disagreement. We're so good at disagreeing respectfully in this country, aren't we? We're not on Facebook, so since we're face-to-face, -face, we can do it uh, a lot more uh, respectfully. But expect there to be some disagreements and things that other people say, you're like, gosh, that's just not the right way to go about it. There isn't a right way to go about it. It may, it may be one that you disagree with, but these are tough questions for a reason. So we're going to talk about sort of the essence, the philosophy behind this disagreement. And it's a conflict between two schools of philosophy, consequentialism and deontology. And, and you're thinking, what on earth are these things? Has anybody ever heard of deontology or know what deontology is? Fair enough. You will now. What it says is that something is right or wrong because of a rule. What's well, a super easy example that most of us are pretty familiar with? Statutes are rules. What's that? Statutes are rules. Rules, statutes, laws. Thou shalt not kill. That is what makes it right or wrong. It's just a rule. If you break the rule, an action is wrong. That's how you know something is right or wrong. That's deontology. Deon being like God, an entity, a holy entity. The science of the rules, again, we usually get from God or something like that. It doesn't matter the outcome. Something is right or wrong because of the rule. So here's another little example that we can use to illustrate deontology. If a sinister-looking man carrying an axe 
knocked on your door and asked you where your best friend was, would it be morally acceptable to tell a lie? Immanuel Kant, surprisingly, thought it wouldn't. The example of the would-be murderer is his. Tell the truth is what Kant called a categorical imperative, an absolute duty, one without exceptions. It applies to everyone, whatever the consequences. In fact, Kant argued that if you told a lie which, by chance, led to the Axeman finding your friend, that would be on your conscience. So if you tell the Axeman that your friend is not in the house when he is, and your friend then sneaks out the back door and bumps in the Axeman, anything that then happens is, to some extent, your responsibility. But if you told the truth, then the consequences for your friend, no matter how grisly, should not be on your conscience. <laughs> That's deontology. Kant says there are certain things that are always your duty. One of them is telling the truth, period. So, whoops, I thought we had a voting there. What do you guys think of that? Axe murderer comes to your door and says, where's your friend? So let me change that around to the Nazi atrocities. Okay. I was following the rules. Society and the courts after said, no, that's wrong no matter what rule you were following. So there has to be a grayish area. So you think consequences matter? Absolutely. I love that uh, great, guy, I think it's a Geico commercial, where it shows Abraham Lincoln and Mary Todd Lincoln, and she says, does this make my, my rear end look big? And Honest Abe is like, he's not sure what to do. <laughs> I've got to go. Yeah, you know? And we think about things like that. Now, generally speaking, we think of being honest, telling the truth as being a virtue, right? I mean, we don't usually celebrate liars or untruths. And yet, you think of a situation where, I don't know, your spouse, your mother-in-law makes you dinner and says, what do you think? And it's the worst thing you've ever tasted. Now you have a choice, don't you? It's terrific. <laughs> that was an interesting dish. Yeah. I look forward to your next meal. I just wish we were eating it now instead of this thing, right? Something is right or wrong because of the rule. So Kant says, look, if you tell a lie and that leads to some outcome, you inserted yourself into that. Your lie led in some degree to that. Now he's not saying you're as guilty as the axe murderer. But you have sinned, to use, to use a religious term, and that led at some level to this. If you remember, he called it an absolute imperative. Categorical imperative. Categorical imperative. Um, so what have people done to really deal with the Kant philosophy? We come up with terms like, it's a little white lie, right? We know that it's a lie. Abe Lincoln telling Mary Todd Lincoln that her butt was big not a great idea, so we have learned to justify violating this absolute absolutism that Kant is talking about. The truth is all that matters. By then kind of changing it, well, I didn't really lie, it was just a white lie, or a little lie, or inconsequential. But it's still the same dilemma. You're making a conscious decision that I'm not going to tell my wife, or I'm not going to tell my mother-in-law, that it was awful, I'm going to say, well, that was interesting. And, and, uh, and that's not a lie. Or it was the best meal I ever had, which would be, but you know in the greater good that's, that's better off. So this deontology part doesn't allow that wiggle room. It doesn't allow us to call 
the things a, a little lie or a white lie. It, it, it is an absolute. And that's what Kant is saying, and that's what deontology is based on, is doing, following the right thing, a code of morals or ethics, not our code of ethics that we live by, but a higher code of, of right and wrong. So, on the other, thank you, Bruce. On the other side is what's called consequentialism. Now, for you, uh, you know, word geniuses out there, in consequentialism, what do you think matters? Consequences, absolutely. The rightness or wrongness of a decision is based on the consequences. The outcome, more important than the action. So, telling a lie isn't a good thing, but we might do it to keep from hurting someone's feelings or to save the Frank family's life, for example. It's not that we don't look at lying as right or wrong. It's right. Why? Because it did something good. That's what consequentialism views it as. Now, the most common form of consequentialism, and one that you've probably heard of, is utilitarianism. It looks at the utility of something, the usefulness of it. Does anybody happen to know that handsome lad? He's the most famous utilitarian. John Stuart Mill. Utilitarian, usefulness. They actually, in philosophy, utilitarian philosophy, they have a measure of utility. The util, U-T-I-L. I mean, philosophers come up with fascinating stuff. It's a, it's a U, a cursive lowercase U, the util. And they talk about, well, what was the, the great good out of that, right? The greatest good for the greatest number is usually how it's put, the most people. The greatest good. Whatever produces the greatest outcome is the right way to go. Doesn't matter what it necessarily involves us doing. If that's the result, that's what makes it good. So an example I want to dust off from my own kind of scholarly career back in grad school is that of a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Does anybody know Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Great German theologian, uh, was active in uh, World War I until just sadly about nine days before the end of World War II. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian, he comes and spends uh, time in the United States studying as a young pastor, goes back to Germany and becomes a very influential theologian. And in the wake of World War I, he had an attitude that a lot of people had about World War I. And that's that war is brutal and unacceptable. Killing is wrong because What's, what does it say in the Bible? Thou shalt not kill. So he argued that war is always wrong. And that reflects the deontology, right? Killing is wrong. It doesn't matter. But then something happened in his life. He was suddenly faced with just about the worst possible evil he could think of. The Nazis and Adolf Hitler. So as the war is winding down and the destruction of Germany is imminent, and as awareness of the Holocaust becomes more and more widespread throughout Germany, he plays a rather small role, but nonetheless makes the choice to participate in the famous July 20th plot to kill Adolf Hitler. You may not know the term the July 20th plot, but you know Tom Cruise's movie, Valkyrie, that plot. Dietrich Bonhoeffer played a very peripheral role, as did several members of his family. Nine days before the end of World War II, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is hung for that decision. Now, I was really confused by this. This guy goes from saying killing is wrong, 
and he has some of the most eloquent arguments against war in the wake of World War I, to participating in a plot to kill another human being. And the reason he did it was this. He became a consequentialist. He said not acting, not doing something, which is to say not trying to kill Hitler, was worse than doing nothing. He said you have to do something because of the consequences. Consequentialism. Make sense? It's the outcome. Yeah, of course, he could have stood back and said, I won't have blood on my hands. But in a way, he realized by doing that, he had more blood on his hands. The consequences of doing nothing. Here's a few other examples of consequentialism to talk about. Bruce? So I don't know how to pronounce this name of this river. Gabe maybe does. Uh, but it was in Bangkok. Was it? I do not. Do not. It was in 2011, and this river was overflowing. And it was going to cause incredible destruction in Bangkok. So the, the people in power got together and said, we have the ability to sandbag and do other measures that will divert the river away from the highly populated area and the water will flow down river and lo and behold it will go into a valley that was heavy farmland and, and populated a lot by the peasant community. They, the peasant community came forward and said wait a minute if you do this you're going to wipe us out and nonetheless the decision was made to divert that river and cause that result. The greatest good for the greatest number. Now in the United States and kind of the Western world generally, most of us are consequentialists. That makes sense. Remember, you said it's better, if you want to use that term, for only one person to die on the railroad track than five. One five, it's that simple. So I'm going to make the choice, the outcome matters. Another example of this is triage that happens in hospitals or in, med in the medical field. What is triage? Priority. 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 Making a decision. Who do I help and who do I maybe not help? And another way of making, of describing that decision is who lives and who dies, or who may live and who may die. Now we have a real pejorative term for making those kinds of decisions. Playing, and yet we do that. We don't look down on a hospital for doing that. There's only five doctors and ten wounded going in the door. Who can we help the most? That's consequentialism. Medical triage. Making a decision, a moral decision, an ethical decision, based on the consequences. Now, for those of you who don't know it, my brother's career, is, career choice isn't entirely useless. Almost every modern hospital has an ethicist on staff. Not a lawyer, although sometimes they are. A philosopher. The military has hundreds, maybe thousands of philosophers that work for them to help them make these tough decisions. Hmm. So, we're piloting a drone, and we know one bad guy is in there, but his five children are also in there with him. What do we do? Well, if we don't blow up the car, he might go do bad deeds. If we do blow up the car, 
His five children are probably going to die. How do we approach that? These are consequentialist questions that we ask all the time in the world and in some of our lives. Hopefully not usually those kinds of questions. Another way to approach it is this idea of selfishness versus selflessness. Now, usually we don't think of selfishness as being a, a positive thing, right? That's selfish. Don't be selfish. And it's great to be selfless. But what happens when we begin to look at sort of the outcomes of that? What if not being selfish leads to your demise and your 10 children become orphans? Well, then maybe making a selfish choice isn't so bad. And in fact, oftentimes we think people have a duty to be selfish. We tell people, you have a duty to prefer your child over somebody else's child. Right? You should. Generally speaking, all other things being equal. And just like being selfless. Sometimes that's a good thing. But it's easy to imagine situations where the consequences of being selfless aren't so positive. You leave your children orphaned or whatever the consequences are. And another way to kind of put that, whoop, I'm learning the touch screen too. Another way to put that idea is where we sit matters. Consequences are a highly individualized thing. Consequentialism we think of as being greatest good for the greatest number, but there's no absolute way of measuring that. What you think is the greatest good may not be what somebody else thinks is the greatest good. Another way to complicate things is the way of looking at consequences. There are short-term consequences, immediate good. Anybody else here love eclairs? <laughs> As you can tell, I love them too much. I had one three nights ago. I really did. Bruce and I are going to France. We're going to have eclairs in France, we've decided. Now, if I'm looking at an apple and an eclair, what is going to give me the greatest good, the greatest joy? I think I heard somebody say apple. You insane man. And eclair. And eclair. Yeah. That would be an easy choice every day of the week. And twice on Sunday, as they say. Easy. No problem. Always is going to give me the greatest good over almost anything. It's a pretty easy conclusion, right? Just like five versus one is. That's a pretty easy conclusion. The math on that isn't hard. Five lives, one life. I'm choosing five lives, then, to save five lives. Easy. But John Stuart Mill realized there's a complication here. There's not just short-term consequences to things, but there are long-term consequences, too. I may get immediate joy by always choosing to eat eclairs, but there's a problem. There are long-term consequences. So he says you can't just look at an immediate short-term, long-term sort of calculation. All right, so we're now back at the, you're back at the switch. The runaway train is coming. We had, let's say, 95% of you said, I would pull that switch, save the five people, right? Nat internationally, globally, it's about 80%, 20%. I would pull the switch, kill, save the one, kill the one, save the five. But what if I said to you the facts are now different? The five people that you would save are all octogenarians. They're 80 years old or older. And the one that's on the other track is an infant, okay? So we already know what one person is gonna say. I can't imagine his vote is gonna change. So here's the question. 
you say to the octogenarians, you all had a good long lives, so I'm pulling the switch. Um, and the other choice is experience and wisdom matters, sorry baby. We gotta keep those five octogenarians with us. So number one, I'm gonna save the baby, you guys have lived long enough. Number two, I'm gonna uh, keep the five and, and, and unfortunately the baby's gotta go. How many of you would do number one? How many of you would do number two? Okay. I, I, I just want to interject here. This is not as clear as the first question because it does imply that on number one, you're pulling the switch, and on number two, yeah. you're not. That was an error. On, that's a typo on my part. Okay. So just look at it as five 80-year-olds or a baby. Ignore the pulling of the switch. Sorry. So you, you said I would not pull the switch the I, first time. Yeah. My, my issue for me, it's not the question of pulling the, of, of the, the five or six. One, the issue is pulling the switch or not. Right, the act. So my, yeah. I am not, my choice is to not uh, make a choice as to who, who will die, live or die. That's my choice. So, okay. I, I, so I you already answered the question. So you mean Bonhoeffer, is that his name? Bonhoeffer? Yes. So that's the Bonhoeffer dilemma, right? Uh, by not acting, if he didn't become part of Valkyrie, by not acting, he was potentially then going to be responsible, and when I say that, I'm using that in the general term, not legally responsible, but he'd have it on him. How many more people Hitler killed? So, so I appreciate that sometimes that it's just, look, I'm not gonna be part of this. There are things that are gonna happen, but it's not gonna be from my decision. So that actually is a very understandable approach here. But you're right, these got, these got flipped. What we're, what we're finding here, though, is statistically, we have almost reversed what we had before. We now have about 20% who will pull the switch and save the five 80-year-olds. And let's say 80% they're gonna go, no, I'm not pulling the switch, I'm saving the baby. That again is very consistent with what is seen worldwide, is that when you are just five people versus one, about four out of five people are gonna save the five people, and unfortunately the one's gotta go. When you then add a fact in there such as, it's a baby, and these are older people, it almost flips exactly the same way, four out of five will not pull the switch, and will save the baby. So as we learn more facts, the result changes. As we consider more things, it comes to a different result. So, we're gonna challenge you again. Down one track, challenge almost all of you. We have one firm position here, but we'll see. The circumstances have changed again. Down one track are five random schmucks. <laughs> I love my Yiddish words. Five random schmucks. Down the other track is still only one person. But you happen to know that that one person is going to give birth to Alexander Fleming. What did Alexander Fleming discover? Penicillin. Penicillin. Make no mistake about it. The discovery of penicillin saved millions and millions of lives and still saves millions and millions of lives. 
small infections, small bugs, colds and flus don't kill us like they used to. Five random people, and you know this, I'm telling you this, and Alexander Fleming's eventual mother. Let the schmucks get smushed. It's Bruce's favorite line in the whole presentation. <laughs> Sorry, Miss Fleming. So the train's gonna hit Miss Fleming. Or I don't know an other. So most of you, the majority of you last time chose one baby over five 80-year-olds. Now you have five nobodies, with all due respect to those nobodies, I can say that because they're not real people. And the mother who will give birth, in a sense, to penicillin. How many of you think the five nobodies should get hit by the train? Hit by the train. How many of you think Miss Fleming, the one, has to go? Okay. It's fun to teach this class again. It's a bummer that we don't have the results. And then I don't know other. Okay. So, anybody want to share some of their thoughts about the vote now? Especially if you switched it. Please go ahead. Uh, basically, the reason I was saying Fleming because in the end, consequence would be that. The invention of penicillin saved many more people than five smokes. Mm -hmm. Agree. So it's not really five and one. You're looking at it as five versus millions. Billions. Okay. I'm taking the opposite position because I'm thinking that penicillin would eventually have been discovered by That moldy bread is going to be on somebody's shelf and they're going to find it. Yeah. You're not supposed to read more into it. And it's hard not to want to introduce some of those additional thoughts. Yeah. Yep. I get that. And as Bruce well, said, heard that many times. Exactly that is that it's somebody says inevitability. Of it. Exactly. You have then, and let's not forget that. By the way, inevitability is part of any decision that we have to make. We may not be conscious of it, but when we're making a decision between two bad choices or two difficult choices we're going to factor in other things. And one that we might factor in is, it may not be this time, but it will be eventually. And so that's a, a valid part to it. Yes, it's adding more to it, while somebody else will. But be conscious of the fact that suddenly you start thinking in those terms, when before we presented this, you may have intuitively or instinctively thought of it, but now you go, oh, wait a minute, what about this? And it just adds to that richness of how you're making a decision. Yeah, I see that process quite a bit in like the issuance of patents. You know, that you're not gonna get this full patent because eventually someone's gonna figure out a 33 RPM record versus a 78, you mm -hmm. know. It's Isn't it so you're in a room where most, yes. most of the people in this room understand what you just said? Do you know how many times we do presentations? <laughs> that I will tell you it's amazing how many times that specific reference, uh, I mean, like, I don't remember what the name is, but we all remember those little discs you put in the middle of the 40. I don't say we all. There's, there's, some, there's some of you, forgive me. We all, you and me, we remember those things, those little discs you put between in the 45 so that they would play. And, and then have a bit somebody understand what a 78 is. I mean, that's really cool. 
The point you just made is the very reason that I have consistently been voting that I'm not in a position to do that split second like that. Five, the five people on the track could be could be bloodthirsty murderers, or they could be saints, the one person on the track, vice versa. So I'm not in the position to intervene because my intervention itself could have uh, negative consequences. But but by that consequence, then I have a moral culpability for that consequence. When I, I can't know that uh, the one of the five could be the, the father of Fleming, or the one could, and, and again, as you go through this and you add more details, okay, but still, the five schmucks, one of them could have, uh, uh, you know, could have been a, a, the parent of, again, a, a future saint or a future Hitler. So you, you would, you, I'm getting the impression that whether you were conscious of it or not, that is part of your decision making. Yes. If I talked to you about this this morning before we had any discussion about this, could you have articulated that as eloquently as you just did? Well, I thought about this taller problem. This is one of my problems. Oh, I, 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 it's something I've been around for a couple okay. of years. Then, then, then that's, a, that's a good thing. But you, you see, my point is you might have because you thought about it before, but he raises some very valid points. And the key to this, again, remembering there isn't a right or wrong, it's just to understand how you get to those decisions and what you are applying when those decisions come about. So we're going to give... The next one here. Now the five people down one track are strangers, and the one on the other track is your significant other. And I will tell you. Now, you can say. So then you could look at it and go, I could add in there. Um, first question is, do you like your significant other? But I will tell you that Gabe and I did this presentation. I, um, was it social workers? Uh, case, uh, juvenile case mediators. Yeah, for in the juvenile court, and my wife, who's friends with Gabe, and and is mostly friendly with me, she came to watch the to watch us do it because she heard us talking about it. Said, "Gee, I'd love to come." So my wife came, and I will tell you, when I presented this one, I said, "And I will tell you, there is a right answer to this question." <laughs> I made it be known, and then I looked at her, and it, nobody knew she was in the room, and I went, "Right, honey." And then they got in there. So, so that's the question. The five people, you perfect strangers to you, and they may be perfect. They're just strangers. And the other one is your significant other. Sorry, folks, there may be a lot of you, but you're not my beloved. I'm not pulling the switch. Sorry, honey, I may love you, but there's only one of you, and there's five of them, or I don't know. So how many of you will say sorry to the five people, and they're going to get smushed? You're going to see. Okay. Shame to say that. Yeah. How many of you would say, sorry, honey, you know, it's five versus one? <laughs> and I assume those who didn't vote, it's because right now they either dislike their loved one or don't have one in their lives. <laughs> because this is being recorded. The podcast. Yes. This is being, and the record will reflect that everybody in the room favored their loved one. So any spouses that listen to this, you got a great spouse here. Or significant other or whatever your relationship is. Now, interestingly enough, I had the opportunity to do this class, unfortunately without Bruce, in Mojave County back in January. 
And I was there for two days. I taught two classes on one day and two classes on the next day, same two classes. So I had students that took the trolley problem on day one who were then in my other class on day two, a different class. And when we handled this one, I had people say, I would always choose my husband or wife. And I said, okay, 100 people on the, down that other track. Husband. I had one woman who was just indignant about it. A thousand people. I would still choose my husband. I don't care what number you get, you give me. She sheepishly came in. It was business writing the next day, much less juicy. She came in and she said, I was talking to my husband about that. He was upset with me. He said, how dare you say you would choose? And I don't remember what the tipping point was for him. I think it might have even been five. How dare you choose five people or me over five people. So we begin to think about that when you introduce yet another kind of factor to a question like this. How would your spouse, so tonight, for those of you that have a romantic partner at home or online, <laughs> see what they would say. It's the 90s, y'all. This stuff is okay. So the issue that we're talking about here is the issue of proximity, the concept of proximity. So as an example of that, you could say this. There are consequences, and then there are consequences. So do we have any beef eaters in here? <coughs> beef eaters? Not the gin or guards in London, but people that like beef. So imagine a world where nice steakhouses don't exist, and those lovely, sterile-looking, plastic-wrapped pieces of meat aren't available. And the only way to get steak is to pull out the knife and go out to the barn. Versus just going to Ruth's Chris. <laughs> How close you are to the consequences will potentially impact it, even though the outcome is the same. Now we can say, oh, people that wouldn't do that are false. I dare you to go do that. It's a much different situation, even though the outcome at its base is the same. Of course, when you go to Roots Chris and order that lovely steak, someone or some machine, but someone fundamentally behind it, had to do that, that rather unappealing thing, that thing that most of you don't think about, don't want to think about, even though the outcome is the same. How close you are to the consequences, your proximity, how close you are to the action. I read a really neat article uh, several years ago when uh, we were just really, the military was getting really active into uh, drones, unmanned combat aircraft. And at the time, they were all being flown out of a base in Florida. I don't know if that's still the case or not but they were all flown out of a base in Florida. And the military made a conscious decision to make the drone pilots, they have to wear the same outfits that they wear in combat as if they were flying an A-10 in the desert. And they, they're in dark rooms, and they try to recreate a combat situation as much as possible because they don't want the pilots to feel removed from what they are doing. It isn't a video game. It might look like a video game, but when they hit that red button on that joystick, 
someone is dying. They don't want the pilots to forget that. They don't want to make killing easy or too easy. Proximity, how close you are. Oh, I'm okay. Instead of flipping a switch, you have a different situation now. You're standing on a bridge above the action. There's the five, there's the one. And standing next to you is none other than the largest human being known to us all, Shaquille O'Neal. Imagine you can push him over. I know people, when I've asked this question before, they're like, I could never, I had a little girl in Mojave said, I could never push him over the bridge. Your decision is, if you push him over the bridge, it will stop the train and save six people. The five and the one. This gargantuan human being you know is big enough to stop the train. Do you do that? Oh dear, something went wrong there. Push him. How many of you would push him and say six? Does he die? He, he will die. As gargantuan as he is. Stop the train. Yeah. How many of you will push him to save the six? Like literally push him with your own two hands. Okay. How many of you would not push him? Okay. Not quite 50-50. We're getting closer. I don't know something else you're struggling with. Okay. What are what are some things that people want to say about this? Anybody who's a Shaq fan is going to go. I don't know. Don't forget, he did play for the Suns briefly. <laughs> yeah, number one. Yeah. One distinct difference in this scenario is why don't you just dive over the bridge yourself and maybe stop the train instead of pushing somebody else? I can tell you're not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's the point I was making. You're causing. You're you're specifically causing someone else who is totally out of that. They're not in the middle of this right now. You're taking somebody who's totally innocent and away and totally safe and deciding that you're going to now actively choose to harm another person. To me, that's very different than saying, do I go right or left? You know, what's that decision? That to me is totally different. So you have kind of two things that you maybe alluded to there. One is that person's involvement in this larger equation. I mean, they're truly an innocent bystander. You know, when you go to Chase Field and says, you know, beware of balls flying off, and Major League Baseball is trying to make it safer, but the reality is you assume a certain amount of risk. You go work on railroad tracks, well, there's some level of risk in this versus just standing on a bridge. So it's kind of the person's relative involvement. And two, boy, I don't know about you, but when I always think of this, there's a big difference between touching a human being's shoulders and a metal lever. Other thoughts? Judge Lester. I'm still mad at him for when he came to Arizona and got to my home floor. <laughs> so you're definitely pushing him. I have a question about one of your other scenarios. Okay. Uh, the scenario about the spouse. Okay. When you did your classes to younger people, did you get different results? Um, I don't, uh, I wasn't looking at that, so that would be an interesting study. Something tells me there probably is data out there that looks at the impact of a, a respondent's age, but I, I don't know enough, so I don't want to venture a guess. But that is interesting. What is it that you think would be the situation? Uh, I think you can get completely different results because most of 
most young people don't have a significant other to throw away for a husband. Well, okay, do you think there would be a difference if your group of respondents all had significant others? And some of them had been married 50 years, and some of them had been married one year? No, I think it would be the same. Okay. Most people are going to tend to favor their spouse, regardless of age or number of years. That'd be an interesting test to get if it hasn't been run. I'd be curious. Thank you. Other thoughts about this particular scenario? Did we, did we still include culture? Uh, that comes in in self-driving cars. Okay. Right. Bruce has a point that he really wants to make, and it's an awesome point, but I'm going to say just wait a second right. there, buddy. <laughs> All right. So on this one now, remember, hands on check. And you assume, by the way, that if you pushed, he shall fall. And if he falls, he will die, and six people will, will, will die. Now, instead of you laying hands on Shaq, let's just say Shaq is standing where Gabe is. He's at the edge. He is in the right spot, but he happens to be, unbeknownst to him, standing on a trap door. I'm not going to touch Gabe, but I'm going to pull the lever. The trap door will open, and down will go Shaq and have the same result. So what would you do in that circumstance? <clears throat> open the trap door which is the equivalent of pushing Shaq. Do nothing, the equivalent of not pushing Shaq, or I don't know. How many would open the trap door? Okay. How many of you would do nothing? Okay, among those who said you would open the trap door, were there any of you who said you would not have pushed Shaq? In other words, did your vote change? It did not change at all, all right. Again, through all this, I won't call it research, it's not research, it's just an accumulation of data. Through all this accumulation of data, there was, just like you were, a real resistance to pushing Shaq. By the way, I will just tell you, because if you want to read up about it, the, the, the way the book is written on this subject, it's called, Do You Kill the Fat Man? And they were not being demeaning to people who were overweight when they wrote it. The point was they wanted to make it so clear that because of the person's size, it would do the mission you set out to do. Because if you had a tiny person and you said, do you kill the tiny person? They'd say, well, how do I know it's going to stop the train? So the way they solved that problem is you had to envision somebody very large that would have the desired effect. We changed it because we didn't want anybody to feel that it was offensive. But when you go do research on this, the problem used to be posed as, do you kill the fat man? We just changed it to Shaq because universally, everybody knows Shaq is as big as a building. And it makes the point. Um, there is a statistical difference when somebody is not pushing Shaq, but rather they're pushing the lever that, lo and behold, controls the tra trap door that, lo and behold, Shaq happened to be standing on that, lo and behold, he fell through and had the same desired effect. Here, there would, nobody changed their mind, not uncommon. But when they've done this over and over again, as you take a step away from the act, you're not actually laying hands on body, there's more people then that would go, <clears throat> yeah, I might pull the trap door, than there would have been if you had to push him. It's all about the proximity, where you are in relation. You notice proximity is in many contexts. Here, it's the proximity to the actual act. 
you're once removed, and by being once removed, we across the world seem to have, uh, maybe it's a rationalization or something, the ability to say, oh, well, I didn't really push him. I just grabbed this lever, and then the following things occurred. So there's a little video. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Do it. No, there's a video. Sir, yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, too, the fact that you picked Shaq as opposed to just a huge, giant guy makes a difference for me. Because I feel like, even though I don't know him personally, I feel like I know him. And, so, and I kind of like him in yeah. a way. You know, so uh, if it was just a random person I didn't know, but he was huge, I would be a lot easier for me to pull the lever well, than a person <clears throat> that I feel like I know them. So if I threw in a variable, if any of you have been following uh, what's going on in the last week. If I said to you, the person standing by the lever is Kobe Bryant, and the guy on the trap door is Shaq, you would probably say, Kobe's going to push it. He's going <laughs> to grab it. Because the two of them are kind of at odds once again with each other. Uh, but that's a point well taken, is if we just described the biggest human, you know, somehow be able to illustrate this gigantic human being, we'd get there. Uh, and uh, it is a variable that he happens to be one of the most likable big people anybody's ever met. And what we're discussing here, and what this video is going to discuss, is the role that emotion makes in our rational calculations. Not just our loved one, but a beloved person, or a personal hero. Like, I don't know, it would be a different decision for me if it was a random person versus Mr. Winslow, my high school English or uh, AP history teacher. Okay. Why? Well, I have more affinity for him. I care more for him. Even though it's the same outcome, right? One person is going to fall off that bridge and stop the train and save the six. Somehow, the calculation isn't just one-to-one -one anymore. It's a big one to just anyone. This intersection between ethics and psychology is what's so interesting about the trolley problem. The dilemma and its many variations reveal that what we think is right or wrong depends on factors other than a logical weighing of the pros and cons. For example, men are more likely than women to say it's okay to push the man over the bridge. So are people who watch a comedy clip before doing the thought experiment. And in one virtual reality study, people were more willing to sacrifice men than women. Researchers have studied the brain activity of people thinking through the classic and bridge versions. Both scenarios activate areas of the brain involved in conscious decision-making and emotional responses. But in the bridge version, the emotional response is much stronger. So is activity in an area of the brain associated with processing internal conflict. Why the difference? One explanation is that pushing someone to their death feels more personal activating an emotional aversion to killing another person. But we feel conflicted because we know it's still the logical choice. Emotion. Our rational calculation, our simple numbers, aren't so simple. As wonderful as these brains are, they're full of all this complex baggage that get in the way, or enhance, as the case sometimes, complicate those rational decisions that we make. Another concept we want to talk about is time, the role time plays. Now that's pretty logical, right? The amount of time you have is going to impact how you decide. 
Isn't that strange to think, though, at the same time, as it obvious as that might be? Your conclusion may change the more you think about it. And what we're talking about snap judgments versus deliberation. When you make a snap judgment, and I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know a lot of us think our intuition, right? We have good intuition. I can just size someone up like that. I can tell. On my way to teaching a version of this class, I heard an NPR story where uh, some researchers had done a long-term long story with uh, career law enforcement people. And they asked them to meet people and weigh their likelihood of recidivism, predict recidivism. And of course, these veteran law enforcement officers, I can spot the guy. I know the difference between somebody who made a mistake and a career bad guy. They were 50-50. And this was hundreds of law enforcement officers with hundreds, maybe thousands of years of experience, all of whom thought, I could tell. They were no better than flipping a coin. <laughs> snap judgments. Where is that snap judgment really coming from? Now, you all may know the name Malcolm Gladwell. He says snap judgments, I mean, I know they look like snap judgments, but they're just really fast, rational calculations. So you should trust your snap judgments. Even he said, our unconscious, unconscious reactions come out of a locked room, and we can't look inside that room. So when you come to snap judgments, you begin to think, wait a minute, where did that come from? There's another expression. Justice depends on what the judge had for breakfast. <laughs> or maybe it's because somebody wronged you 50 years ago that looked a certain way. Or a certain tone of voice. So the more time we have, the more likely we are to be consequentialists and weigh the factors. Remember the olden days, if you had a tough decision, you'd make a list, pros and cons, maybe you still do that. A lot of us do it in our brains. Okay, if this happens, which is the desirable outcome? This, this, and this, or this, this, and this, I'm going this way. The more time we have, the more consequentialist we are. We want to think our snap judgments reflect something, but we don't, we don't really know. Isn't that funny? You're just rationalizing something. Now here I am telling you that it's better to take more time to make a decision. It will change your decision. And yet think about what we think of when we use the term, you're rationalizing something. You're just coming up for, with reasons. Well, yeah, on the one hand, shouldn't we? We should do that. We should be more reasonable. But then it becomes, you're not being more reasonable anymore. You're just searching for justifications. So it's tough to know what to do with this rationalizing that we should be doing when we think. So we're going to talk a little bit about something that you all have received training on, I know, have thought about, have seen news stories about. The self-driving trolley. <laughs> Because make no mistake about it, that's what it is. You got an article for this class, I think. I don't know if you were emailed it or if it was in the back of the room or something like that. And that's this article here. You can find it online, so if you didn't get it or want to go get another copy. Should a self-driving car kill the baby or the grandma? Depends on where you're from. MIT Technology Review. 
That's the information there. Again, it's just it's available freely online. And what the article is about is the programming they're doing, companies like Waymo, Google, and self-driving Uber, the programming that they're going through when the car is faced with a dilemma. Now we say, well, there's no dilemmas for machines. Of course not, because we're programming them a certain way to respond. So what should a car do when two bad things are guaranteed to happen? And it has to make the decision, essentially, or be programmed to make the decision, one over the other. Go take this test online. It's really fun. The Moral Machine, it's moralmachine.mit, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, .edu. I actually took it. Those are my actual results. My most saved character, a juvenile girl. My most killed character, an old lady. <laughs> wow. I know, sorry for those of you that might fit, fit that category. And it's kind of hard to see, but it's saving more lives versus less lives. The average is kind of halfway between the middle, again, like equal decision, and I'm way over here. Now, I will betray one thing about the test. When you go and take it, pay very close attention to the little things on the screen. Put on your readers if you need to. Because there are certain clues built into the little dilemma, image dilemmas, like which way should the car go, that are supposed to matter that I didn't realize until the very end of the test. Things like whether or not somebody was in a crosswalk, whether or not somebody had a cane and was supposed to be old, because it is kind of small, like you zoom your screen or whatever it is. But go take it, because they're actually kind of taking this data and what would be called crowdsourcing, the collective mind, to think about how they should program cars. That car is driving and there is an old person or one person, let's just take it easy, in the crosswalk. And it doesn't have time to brake. It will either hit her or do you program it to swerve off and go onto the sidewalk where there may be people? What do you do? It's got to know what to do. So this is a trolley problem in action. And again, you can go out there and imagine, in a sense, and you kind of are, helping to program self-driving cars. It's really fun, too, by the way. And just so you know, they've had literally millions of people do this. So they are really collecting an incredible amount of data from this. But not an exaggeration, they are in the millions who have filled out that. And there are some parts here that they found to be true. And you know the point that Gabe said, hold that point? Answers are very different, there's one part, um, this one here, cultural differences. If I gave the question about do you kill the infant or the five octogenarians, in certain Far East cultures, the answer is very easy. You save the octogenarians because there is a reverence for age. There is a deference given to people who are eight, uh, older. Uh, it, it's a cultural ingraining that they have. So here, we may not, and it's again, not right or wrong. Here, we may not have that culturally. In fact, we may culturally be very maternal or paternal in our approach and protect little children. It's not that they're heartless about little children, it's just culturally, the elderly are to be respected and revered. So we see that. Um, we see differences depending on what the economics uh, are 
of the culture, you know, where people from poorer countries were more tolerant of jaywalkers. Um, why? Because if you view videos from some of those areas, people walk all over the, you know, they, they come out from all directions. They don't have the kind of infrastructure that we, that we do. So lacking the infrastructure, crosswalks and beeping lights that say, do not cross, cross, they are therefore wandering across streets more frequently than we might see here. And as a result, they're gonna be more tolerant of that kind of behavior. It's not that we're intolerant, but they're gonna look at it and say, well, there's nothing out of the line there. But here, if somebody wa suddenly walks between two parked cars, a great distance against the light and a distance away from the crosswalk, we're gonna have a reaction that goes, well, you, you put yourself in a really bad position where in those countries they'd say, well, what's, why is that any different? As I say, I love this quote at the bottom. This is from one of the researchers in The Moral Machine. It seems concerning that people found it okay to a significant degree to spare higher status people over lower status people. It's important to say, hey, we could quantify that instead of saying, oh, hey, maybe we should use that. So they want to let you know they're not necessarily going to be using all the answers people give. Because they have deontological commitments too. <coughs> People to a great majority, particularly in some cultures, make the decision, you know what, a person of great prominence should be spared over people of lesser prominence. And they're saying, ah, we don't think we actually do want to happen to choose that apparent preference of people. We're going to override it. So it raises all these really tough questions, questions that we all have to start grappling with. I mean, think about the, the self-driving Uber that killed the woman in Tempe. I mean, gosh, we sat there and had to think, like, how do we even treat this? And that was somewhat clear on what was liable. The driver and the company made certain decisions that impacted the outcome. But what happens once those cars are completely autonomous and free and clear? It needs to know. Gosh, there's a dog in front of me. Do I just run over it? Or do I swerve knowing that there is an, a human entity over here? Or swerving right or left? Who's going to take the brunt of this accident? The driver or the passenger? Or the driver and a pedestrian? More lives over fewer, women over men, fit over skinny. I mean, these sensors will come to the point where they'll very, very easy, easily be able to tell Who's in the crosswalk? Judge Lusk or Gabe? Do we think as a society, well, all things being equal, let's hit Gabe. He's a health person. <laughs> he doesn't eat apples like Judge Lusk does. This one is, this one, if the passengers versus pedestrians, this one is kind of where many of you were instinctively when we started, which is starting to think of the other factors. So if we just knew, if I, if I program the car to keep going, I'm going to hit the pedestrian. If I program the car to avert the pedestrian, I'm going to hit the car next to me. We would all probably say there's a chance for the people in the car next to you to survive the impact greater than if you hit a pedestrian. Well, that's part of the question then. It's not that we're looking at people in a car to be less valued than the pedestrian. We have to make value judgments that say, the chance of death is greater to the pedestrian than the people in the car next to you, so we're gonna make a qualitative judgment about that. But the, you remember you were starting to think through all these little nuances, and 
intervening events. There was the one of, well, what if I, I think, that you raised it, if I push it and the track curves so much, maybe it'll be derailed. That really is starting to get into this kind of thing, to look at it and say, all right, if I hit the car next to me, the chance of those people making it out of that accident are far greater. Just like you said about the switching the cars. If I switch it, maybe it'll derail before it hits the one person, the same thing. But here's real life where we have to start thinking through those kinds of things. And all of these, some of them young versus old, as I said, are cultural. Um, women over men, we still are a paternalistic society. Um, I think that <clears throat> our, in my generation's grandchildren may not see it the same way. I had an interesting experience when I was teaching family law at ASU at the law school and I raised the issue of spousal maintenance or alimony. And we were just, we, I didn't raise it like, do you want it? I was raising it to teach them that there's this thing called spousal maintenance or alimony. I was shocked, I did a poll of the students. How many of the young women law students did not, they were, how I would call it unforgiving they were to somebody seeking spousal maintenance? That was a generational thing. That wasn't, that wasn't a, a socioeconomic thing, it was generational. I grew up in a generation that had the Donna Reed show and Father Knows Best. Fortunately, these young women have grown up in a generation that talked about women who were empowered and, and opportunities, and we know that it's not equal yet. We know that, but their views are changing. So some of the answers to these questions might change depending on who we're doing this for. If, if they base it all on people like me, they're going to be bringing in some older way of thinking or past generational thinking. <clears throat> One could argue that if we're talking about something that's going to apply to the future, should we put more weight on the younger generation because it's their generation that's going to be impacted by how we program these self-driving cars? These are all interesting questions for us to look at of where the data is coming from and what we're trying to do. So the important question you have, of course, is, so what? Right? I mean, like all philosophy, what is its real applicability? So we'll go back to the good place. They have an answer. Why don't you just tell me the right answer? Well, that's what's so great about the trolley problem, is that there is no right answer. Uh, this is why everyone hates moral philosophy professors. I'm on your side here, but he is not wrong. Okay, Michael, trust me. When it comes to human ethics, I just know more than you. I've been studying it my whole life. It's just that it's so theoretical, you know? I mean, you know, maybe there's a more concrete approach. Here, let, let's try this. Oh, God! Michael, what did you do? the trolley problem real so we can see how the ethics would actually play out. There are five workers on this track and one over there. Here are the levers to switch the tracks. Their choice. The thing is, I mean, ethically speaking, no time, dude. Make a decision. Well, it's tricky. I mean, on one hand, if you ascribe to a purely utilitarian worldview. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, what did we learn? <laughs> so, uh, analysis paralysis. Here was somebody, remember he just made this little speech. I just know more than you do. I studied this all my life. 
But when faced with the real problem, you saw how he dealt with it. And John Rawls came up with this notion of reflective equilibrium. Um, and I want to, instead of talking about what Rawls told us about that, is to give you a true story. Um, it's 2013, and I was assigned to the criminal bench at the time. And a case comes to me, comes before me. The case involved a 21-year-old young man who was from a very prominent family in Paradise Valley. He had his own BMW that he was driving. And he was a diabetic. He also was a drug addict. And he's driving on, if, if you know where the Phoenician Hotel is, <coughs> he's coming first west on Callenbeck, and then he turns right to go north on Invergordon, which is the equivalent about 66th Street or something, 64th Street, right around there. <coughs> he makes this right turn. When he does, he rapidly accelerates. And when I say rapidly accelerates, I don't mean he goes from zero to 30. It, estimates are he got up to about 80 miles an hour. And as he's going north, he's cutting around the cars that are there. Well, one of his little maneuvers that he made when he cut to go around somebody, single lane each direction, he realizes there's a limousine coming at him. So he has to decide in that split second what to do. And instead of moving back into his lane, he decides to go further over actually to avoid hitting everybody. Not a thought out process. This is not, this is not a trolley problem. This is just what he did. And when he moves to the left, the right front of his car clips the limo, which, because of his speed and the angle that he got clipped, literally sent his car into the air doing an entire flip. Not a flip forward, but a, a sideways rotation. And as he comes down, wheels to the ground, there was a pedestrian walking along Invergordon. And at the precise moment, that his car hit the ground, it hit, <clears throat> it hit the ground where this pedestrian was. He was a 60-year-old, well-respected, well-loved physician who was out for an evening stroll waiting for his wife to come home. And they worked together and they had this incredible love affair for whatever number of decades. And she had kissed him goodbye at work and said, I'm going to stop at our kid's house to drop something off, and then I'll meet you at home. He got home early, decided to go for a walk. It was a beautiful evening. He got hit so hard that it literally knocked him out of his clothes, and he was killed instantly. The young man driving the car ends up in a ditch on the wrong side of the road, same direction he was going. And everybody shows up, and he's the young man in terrible shape. He had been injured in the accident, and he's moaning and groaning. When the medics come by, they notice all kinds of drug paraphernalia strewn across the front seat of his car, it, it, whether it had been in, the, in, the, in, in, in his lap or in the other seat or whatever. But they find this. Law enforcement shows up, and they also see this. They transport him to the hospital, and all they can get out of him was, no. No, no. That's all he would say. Whenever they asked him, he was just screaming, no. When they went, can we, can we put this brace around you? No. 
And he just kept screaming this over and over again. So they get to the hospital, and they're trying to administer medical care to him, and he's still screaming no. And by the way, this is all caught on audio tape. So I was able to hear him actually saying the word no. The other part about the accident, I don't know if you ever knew this, but the photo radar cars, did you know that they actually every second or two snap a picture? Not, I'm not talking about when there's somebody coming by. It, I didn't know this, but it just so happened there was a photo radar about 300 feet further up the road, which just keeps snapping during the period they're not catching somebody. And it happened to snap a series of about five pictures that I was actually able to see his car when it made contact with the limo, his car when it was sideways, his car when it was upside down, and in all three of those pictures, I was, it's not clear, the image isn't clear, but I could see the pedestrian. Then when he flips this way, and then the last picture is him on the ground and the pedestrian is gone. So there's actual photographs. When I say how he flipped in the air, I'm not making it like dramatic story. We actually saw pictures of it. So now the issue comes before me and the defense moves. The, while he's at the hospital, the law enforcement people show up and they said, you know, they were obviously drawing blood for medical reasons. They said, draw an extra vial for us, and they did. The hospital drew that vial, and, and they, they preserved it. The defense now challenges the appropriateness of that acquiring of the blood vial. And um, I'm faced now with the fact that the only evidence, his defense was predicated on the fact he was a diabetic. And what he was going to claim was that because he went into a diabetic shock, it caused him to do this erratic behavior, and he therefore should not be responsible for the death. Now, we did about 10 hearings before we got to this particular hearing. Every hearing, the doctor's wife sat in the last row of the courtroom, off to the right. Stoically, with dignity, and with incredible strength, she never reacted to anything, but she always made eye contact with me. She, she didn't miss anything at all. She was the voice and the dean for her husband to make sure he got justice. I was well aware of her presence, and I greeted her every time she came. Mrs. So-and-so, it's nice to see you again, but I also greeted the defendant's family when they showed up. Now this motion comes before me. Suppress the evidence. <coughs> There's, there was case law at the time, and this decision actually changed some of the case law. Um, there was case law at the time that said, you can't use that evidence if he clearly rejected the medical care. But if he agreed to the medical care, you could use that evidence that was gathered as part of the medical care. So the defense argued him repeatedly saying, no, 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 was him rejecting medical care. To which I sat there, and I don't know what he was saying, but I made a reflective equilibrium type of decision. We all, when we sit in the position we do, take an oath that we're going to uphold the laws, the Constitution, and the laws of the state of Arizona. If one of those laws said that you can't have an unreasonable search and seizure, I swore to that. What is that? Deontology, right? That's, it doesn't matter what the result is, that's what I agreed to, a very clear rule. If I concluded that him saying no was rejecting medical care, then by its nature, I had to conclude that the evidence had to be suppressed. 
If, though, I found that him saying no was maybe other reasons he was saying no, then he, he might not have clearly rejected the medical care and therefore the evidence comes in. And I will admit that as part of that decision, way before Gabe and I ever talked about the trolley problem, I sat there and thought to myself, deontology, without ever knowing the term, consequentialism. The greater good, the right outcome, the greater good was that woman sitting in the back of the courtroom for her to get justice for her husband. The greater good was holding this little son of a bitch responsible for the fact that he, it turned out, did, I, th I think it's called a, a speedball or an eight ball or something, I'm not familiar, but that's what he had done. Somebody will tell me, I know it involves cocaine. And heroin. And heroin, okay. So he had done, he had done at least two of these eight balls and there was evidence of more in the car. Greater good, this little son of a bitch, excuse my language, needed to be in prison. It wasn't gonna bring the doctor back, but doesn't that woman have the right to know that somebody was held responsible when she also had to see the video, these pictures, of watching her husband's literal last seconds on earth. And because it wasn't clear to me, this was me making a decision, it wasn't clear to me that he was rejecting medical care, I found that the evidence was legally obtained and therefore the case goes forward. He gets convicted at trial and the maximum sentence I was able to give him was 15 years and that's what I gave him. <clears throat> Part of the reason why I really hammered him is a year before he had done something very similar and got off because of this claim about diabetes. So I looked at him and I knew that. The jury didn't know anything about his past as we know they shouldn't have known, but I knew that. So when it came time for sentencing, I looked and said, you know, this wasn't just a one-off one thing where you didn't realize, hey, if I combine this with that, this could be the consequence. You, he got into an accident before. Didn't hurt anybody the last time. The Court of Appeals reversed me and found that there needed to be a warrant. I was so angry with the Paradise Valley Police Department the day I had to make that decision because I thought, he's not going anywhere you so easily can get a warrant, why didn't you? But that wasn't my facts. That's what you should have done. And the Court of Appeals ruled uh, that in those situations, if there isn't the exigent circumstances that would exist, so they should have gotten the warrant. And his conviction got set aside. <coughs> yeah. Having been in law enforcement for 30 years, a warrant for what? His blood. blood. His blood. Yeah. But you also said he rejected Medical well, we don't know that he rejected it because he, he got medical treatment. He was, he was saying no. And what the question was by him saying no was it didn't mean he didn't get medical treatment. It meant did he, by agreeing to medical treatment, if, if he said, I'm hurting, treat me, then the law that existed at that time would have said they could have then taken the blood because he consented to the treatment. It wasn't a matter of whether he got treatment, it was whether he consented to the treatment. So when they asked for an actual vial of blood, they needed the warrant. Yeah, so they could have gotten the warrant so easily. Probable cause was easy because everybody saw the drug paraphernalia in the car. It was a no-brainer, but there I was. Now, when the Court of Appeals made its decision, I didn't have any ego involved, I will tell you that. I looked and I went, yeah, I, I could see that. I knew that back then. But in my mind, I looked and said, 
He's already served six years in prison between pre-sentence incarceration and in prison. So, and I gave that family something. Consequentialism, right? But now I've been told that the deontologist's instinct that I had was probably right. The rules are the rules, and the rules weren't as clear then. Now I know I would have had to have kicked that evidence out, and that trial wouldn't have gone forward. So why is this about ethics? What do we, how do we tie all this together? We all have a black box in our heads. If I say to you right now, and let's say there were windows in this room, tell me what, what you think of today. And you say, it's a nice day. What do I know from that answer about what kind of day it is today? Nothing. What you know is unconsciously you said to yourself, I like sunny days. If you notice that the trees were not blowing, you say, I like still air. Um, if the trees were just blowing in the wind, you can say, I like a nice breezy day. You in your mind went through this whole analysis that took you to, it's a nice day. Now, if I asked somebody from Seattle to look outside, they would say, today was a beautiful day. If I ask all of us, you would say, when is summer ending? <laughs> Could somebody please give me a cloud, right? So, but yet, the answer is the same. It's a nice day. This process here is to allow you to open up the black box in your head and say, when you're making decisions, I am bound by the rules. I also find it to be important to know what the consequences are of the decisions I make. And this doesn't matter whether it's a traffic ticket, an administrative hearing, all the way up to a case involving somebody's death. The, what the case involves doesn't change the analysis. It may change how you weight things, but it doesn't change the analysis. So allow yourself when you make decisions to be asking yourself the kinds of questions we asked here. All right, what are the rules? And how do I feel about my commitment to those rules, about the oath I took that says I will follow, I will uphold the laws, the Constitution and the laws of the state of Arizona. But in doing so, these people are going to be affected. How do I feel about that? And allow yourself what really is reflective equilibrium. It allows you to make a decision that says, I thought through all those elements, even though they might be in competition with one another. Because if you only adhere to deontology, the Kant type of philosophy, hey, I swore to the Constitution, and sorry, if you didn't follow the law about search warrants, you're out, and the woman who's sitting in the back of the courtroom that you're looking her in the eye, it doesn't matter, because they did the right thing. If you're only a consequentialist, to hell with the Constitution, right? I'm looking at you, and you're important, and therefore, no matter what wrongs were done by law enforcement in that situation, I'm ruling this way. We're also doing harm, aren't we, to the system that we are sworn to honor. This process allows us to just weigh and balance that, opens up the black box in our mind to make us think when someone asks us, is it a nice day? We sit there and say, what do I consider part of that decision-making process? When I have to make a call that isn't the split-second call, but I have to make a judgment. Somebody's been giving me an issue, and now I'm the one that's the finder of fact and make the conclusions of law. 
how, what values do I apply? Not values of good versus evil, but value judgments of how I'm weighing these things that inside your mind they're already happening anyway. It just so happens in that case that I told you about, without knowing it, I actually went through this whole process. I thought through both options and I came to a conclusion and I live with that conclusion. I don't think I dishonored the Constitution because I think the law wasn't as clear. And, and I think that in the end, somebody looked at it and said, I got it wrong and I can live with that because at least I thought it through. So that's really what the whole trolley problem is as it relates to us as members of, uh, of a, some type of judicial or decision-making role is all of us are in a position to weigh and balance those things and we will invariably make much better decisions if we remember this stupid little thing about the trolley problem and look at it and say, man, I went on a Friday afternoon and heard about, do I pull a switch or don't I? Hopefully you can see that this truly is a much greater impact on what we do than just this little interesting debate, do I or don't I, should I push it, or what am I gonna to do to poor Shaq, and what about my wife, and isn't she proud of me that I saved her? Um, and hopefully that's what your takeaway will be here. So thank you all, uh, we really appreciate it, and Godspeed as you go forward. Safe, fun, long weekend.